and welcome to the Southcliff Podcast. We're glad you've joined us. Now here's Senior Pastor Dr. Carol Marr with this week's sermon. Well, it is a joy to be with you today. Good to see you. Glad for those of you that, that braved the cold weather to come and be a part of our time together. I tell you, uh, Texans can put up with 115 degree summers, but man, when it gets below 20, we don't know what in the world to do. And uh, so I am grateful for all of you that are present. I'm grateful for those of you that are watching online. And I'm not even going to get on to you today. You can watch online and just enjoy uh, your time there in your warm house. But God has something to say to us today, and we don't want to miss that. And I am glad that you have joined us to discover that together. Last time, we uh, began a series of messages that we're going to uh, continue for the next few weeks And the title of that series of messages is Finding Security in an Insecure World. Now, I don't have to, I don't have to spend a whole lot of time telling you that we live in a world that is insecure. All of us understand that. We know that. I don't even have to spend time talking to you about the importance of security because all of us long for that and we are working in our lives to try to bring that about. And what we discovered last time we were together is that the security that we long for is found in a relationship with God. And that God's word tells us a lot about security and how we can find and experience and have security in this insecure world that we live in. Now, last time we were together, we looked at four basic principles that establish a foundation from which we can build as we move forward. Now, these four things I think are critical if we're going to understand how we can experience uh, we, we can experience uh, security in our life. So let me remind you of those four things, and we kind of build on those in a practical way today, talking about how do we take these principles and live them out in the reality of our lives. So the four principles that we discovered last time we were together are simply this. God owns everything. Now what that means is you own nothing. Now, I know that that everything in us rises up a little bit when I say that you don't own anything because many of us say, well, I've worked hard for what I have and I have been honest in my work and and I've got a good work ethic and, and so for you to kind of say that I don't own, yes, I do. I own things that I have. Well, the truth of the matter is you don't own anything. And to prove that to you, I would just simply ask you a question, what do you think is going to happen to that which you own 100 years from now? You're not going to take it with you. When you and I step out of this world, we're not taking anything with us. What that means is we don't own anything. God owns everything. Now, if it's true, and we know it is, that God owns everything, we do have possessions, right? We have resources at our disposal. What that means is I have possession of things that don't belong to me. It belongs to God. And that means I am a steward of God's resources. As a result of the fact that you have things that you call your own, recognizing that they're not your own, they belong to God, that means you're in charge of those things that belong to God. Your possessions are his. We are simply stewards of the resources and the possessions that God has made available to us. Now, the third thing that we recognize is that as a steward of the possessions God has given me, 
he holds me responsible. So God holds me responsible for how I use his resources. They belong to him. And he wants to make sure that I am faithful in the use of the things that belong to him. So you and I are responsible to God. We are stewards and we are accountable to God. We're going to stand before God one day, give an account for how we used the resources that God placed at our disposal. Now, the fourth thing that we discover together is very, very important because even as I begin to talk about stewardship and possessions and resources, you almost always think about money. But I want you to recognize last time we discovered that stewardship goes beyond money. It's not just about the financial area of our life. Stewardship really touches every area of my life. Not only has God given me financial resources, he's given you time. God holds you accountable for how you live the life that he's given you. How you live the years that he has given you to live out on this earth. Not only has he given you time, he's given you talents, he's given you abilities. God gave you abilities, he's given you spiritual gifts, and he holds us accountable for how we use our time, our abilities, our gifts, those resources that we have. Last time we were together, we even discovered that if we are a child of God, God has given to you the gospel. You and I are recipients of the gospel. You know what that means? We are stewards of the gospel. We're responsible even of the truth that we have, that we have an opportunity to share with other people. So God's going to one time say to us, look, I gave you the truth. The world was searching for truth and I gave it to you. What'd you do with it? Did you hide it? Did you share it? Were you open to communicate that with others? So we recognize that this stewardship involves every area of our life. So over the next few weeks, we're going to kind of unpack what that looks like to flesh that out and to live that out in our lives. And today, we're going to do that by looking at some investment strategies. How can I invest in this life in order to be the faithful steward that God has called me to be? Well, we're going to discover that together in a wonderful place in the Bible in the words of Jesus. Not surprising that we would look at the words of Jesus to discover these truths. And these words are found in a passage of Scripture in the Bible that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the reason we call it the Sermon on the Mount is because I think it was given that label by the people who heard it in the very beginning. It's the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus was on a hillside or on the mountainside when he delivered that sermon. And I think what happened, people were talking about what Jesus said, the radical words that he offered that were so life-changing and so freeing, and they were talking about that, and they were distinguishing about the times when they heard him. And they would probably say, well, you remember when Jesus preached that sermon? Um, it, was, it was the sermon over there when he was on the mound. You know what I'm talking about, the Sermon on the Mound. And as a result of that, it's kind of got connected to the Sermon on the Mount. So the geography of where he was when he spoke these words became the title for that sermon. It's recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter five, all the way through chapter seven. 
So one of the greatest sermons that you find in the Bible, Jesus preached Matthew 5 through 7. And in that sermon, in practical ways, Jesus addresses so many of the issues that people were living with and challenged by during his day. Many of the things he addressed, this was early in his ministry, he established this kind of a foundation and builds on that throughout his ministry. But we're going to look at a section of that where Jesus offers us some investment strategy, and that is to be discovered in Matthew chapter 6. So right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, we're going to look at verse, 20, uh, verse 19, uh, and these are familiar uh, words to you, verse 19 down through verse 24. Now, as we get ready to look at this, I believe he's going to offer to us in the text three investment strategies, three things that we kind of need to keep in mind as <coughs> we use the resources, not just financial, but all of the resources that God has given to us and made at our disposal. Now, what he does in these few verses, he offers to us three parallel statements. In each one of these statements, he gives us a parallel and he kind of contrasts. And as we look at these contrasts in these three parallel statements, we'll recognize those three strategies that he introduces us to. So look with me, if you will, verse 19, chapter 6, Matthew, and we read these words. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now I, and here's the second of the two parallels. The first one is between treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. The second one he offers is a good eye and a bad eye. Look at what he says in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So next he contrasts between an eye that is good and we can see clear and an eye that is bad where we're not able to see clearly. Then the third parallel is in that final verse as he offers a challenge between two masters in verse 24. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So in just those simple terms, Jesus offers us some investment strategies with regard to the possessions that we have, whether they be time, talent, treasure, those possessions that we have, how can we invest those treasures, uh, those resources in God's kingdom work. He begins, first of all, with a play on words in verse 19 and 20. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where the moth comes and rust destroys and the thief breaks in, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He makes a distinction between earthly possessions and heavenly possessions. Earthly possessions would be recognized as those things that are temporary. Heavenly treasures would be recognized as those that are eternal. What he is ultimately saying in the text before us is, number one, we are to value the things God values. Now, in this play on words, if I could get back to the original, we could kind of read it this way. Do not treasure for yourself treasures on earth, but treasure for yourself treasures in heaven. So he is simply saying, I want you to live your life recognizing the importance of investing in heaven. Now let me just say this at the very outset. Because a lot of times when you talk about these things, it almost sounds like we're saying we need to take all of the resources we have and use them for eternity and we're never to have any fun, never to take a vacation, never to buy a nice car, never to do the kind of things that we enjoy doing. And I don't want you to feel guilty about the things that you enjoy in life. In fact, the Bible tells us that we can enjoy temporary things. God has given us blessings that you and I can enjoy. And I enjoy the things that I have that God has provided for me that I am able to use. I enjoy my home. I enjoy those resources that God has made available to us. But yet at the same time, I enjoy the temporary things. But this is what God says. But don't invest in the temporary things. Enjoy the temporary. Invest in the eternal. You're not going to be here through the temporary. Invest in that which is eternal in the heavens. Don't invest in the things on earth. And so you can, you can enjoy the things you have here, but utilize the things that you have here as an investment there. Give you an example of what I'm talking about. And I don't want it to, to, to sound self-serving, but maybe it gives you an example of what I mean. Tanya and I have been wonderfully blessed, and, uh, and this church has been good to us and providing for our needs, and we have a wonderful home that we enjoy. We've got an upstairs with three bedrooms, and we had three sons, and each one of them had a bedroom upstairs. Well, once they got grown and gone, they moved out. They left, so the whole upstairs was empty in our house. And Tanya and I sat down one time, and we began to talk about the fact that, that the house is empty upstairs. Do we need to downsize all those kind of questions we have? Do we want to downsize? Do we want to move? We don't have the kids here anymore. And we came to the conclusion, well, this is God's house. And so he's going to lead us to know what we need to do. Well, over the course of the last few years, many of you know my story. You know that there have been numerous people who have lived with us. There have been people who have come to us. There was one guy that we met that was in prison, and he was about to get paroled. He didn't have anywhere to go. It's a long story. But Tanya and I began to pray about that. Where is it that he used to go? And I remember on one occasion, God kind of whispered in my ear and said, you know what? This guy's getting out of prison. He doesn't have anywhere to go. He doesn't have any family. You've always said, this is my house, and if this is my house... You got the whole upstairs open, nobody living there. Hey, are you willing to let this guy move in? And so I remember in that prayer time, this is what I said. I said, God, if this is you, if this really is you speaking, you're going to have to tell Tanya. Because <laughs> I am not going to tell her. I am not, I promise you, I will not tell that woman that I'm going to bring an ex-con into our house. You're going to have to do that. 
And so I didn't say a word to Tanya. I just, and I told God every day, I'm not doing it, Lord, I'm not going to tell her. You're going to have to tell her. I didn't say anything. Well, over Christmas time, Christmas came, and he and I were write, was writing each other back and forth, and, and he sent me something that he had made in prison, and so I received it. Tanya, of course, knew about him, the correspondence we'd had, and so as a result of that, opened it up, and we were talking about him, and I made this statement to her. I said, hey, you know what? Hey, Sammy's going to get out in February, and he doesn't have anywhere to go. He doesn't have a family. He's, he's going to be up for parole, and the only way he's going to get a parole is if he has a place to go. He doesn't have anywhere to go. And I promise you, this is what she said. She said, well, you know what? We've always said this is God's house, and the hole upstairs is free. Nobody's living there. Maybe it's time that we said, okay, and maybe he could come live here with us. And I said, are you serious? She said, what did he do? <laughs> Well, the story was we brought Sammy in to our house, and he wasn't the only one. He lived with us a year, and in fact, he lived with us a couple of years, and we helped him. There was another person that came in that had some uh, drug-related issues, and we brought him in to our house, and there were other people that we... And, and I want to tell you something. What I enjoy my home. I love my home, but I'm not investing in that. I want to use that home to invest in things that are eternal, things that matter, things that God values. And when you look at the Bible, let me tell you what God values. God values people. Did you know that people are a treasure to God? In Scripture, he refers to people as a treasure. He talks about the nation of Israel as my treasured people. And so if you want to value the things God values, value people. Value eternity. What does the Bible say in that very familiar verse in John three sixteen? For God so loved the world, God values the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not have perish, but have everlasting life, have eternal life. And so all of a sudden what God is doing is longing for that experience of eternity in our hearts. So we invest our time and our talents and our resources in things that matter. So that's what Jesus did. And that's what I think you and I can do at the same time. So enjoy the temporary stuff you have, but invest in things that matter. Make sure that we're using our time and our resources and those possessions that are available to us to make an impact in the kingdom for what matters. Now, the second thing he says is this. The second contrast that he makes. I am hearing something, Mike. I don't know if you're... Is there something going through this? Do you, are you guys hearing it too? Okay. Hey, Good. I think we got it. Did we get it? Oh, good. I thought I was hearing voices a moment ago, and I'm like, I almost stopped. The Lord, is that you? Is it you? Anyway, all right. So, thanks so much, Mike, for taking care of that. Well, the second thing that we notice is this. He makes a contrast between bad eyes and good eyes. Now, notice what he says. This is one of those confusing ones to me. You know, I get the store up in heaven, not on earth where the thief comes and all that kind of stuff. I get that. But this one was kind of confusing. The, 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 the eye is the lamp of the body. Um, then if the eye is clear, the whole body will be full of light. But if the eye is bad, the whole body is full of darkness. If then the light uh, that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, what is he talking about there? 
uh, a bad eye versus a healthy eye. I, th I think that, that ultimately he's saying this. He, he is saying of a healthy eye, he literally is referring to it means to be, to have a healthy eye or uh, a, a, an eye that is clear. He uses the word clear. It is, it is to have an eye that is clear, an eye that is good, an eye that is single, an eye, if you translate it literally, it means to be without folds, which is kind of interesting because without folds also carries the idea of generosity. And in fact, I begin to recognize that eyes in scripture sometimes indicate whether or not we are are used as an indication of generous versus selfish. Uh, in the book of Proverbs, for example, in verse or chapter 23, uh, uh, verse 6 of Proverbs, it says, Do not eat the bread of a selfish man. Do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies. The, the selfish that is used there could also be translated evil eye. It's almost as if what Jesus was saying is those who have good eyes have the ability to see the needs of other people around them. They're able to see beyond themselves. They, they see with a clarity to understand what needs to be done and do it. Those that have evil eyes or bad eyes are so focused on themselves that they can't see beyond themselves. They're so selfish and self-centered but those who have good eyes are generous because they recognize. So I think that what Jesus is referring to here is really a contrast between generosity and selfishness as he is ultimately saying that we are to, we're to focus on the things that, that God focuses on. That, that we're to have eyes as he do. Jesus is speaking, of course, of spiritual eyes in this sense. And, and he is ultimately saying that we are to focus on, uh, on the kingdom of God. The things that matter to God, those are the things that we focus on. Invest in things that bring him pleasure, not just things that bring me pleasure. Kind of brings us back to the concept of a relationship, Right? You remember last time we were together, we looked at another parable that Jesus told about, um, about finances. It was the parable of the talents. And the word talent is used to describe resources. You remember, it's in Matthew 25. Last time we were together, Jesus tells the story of a man who's going to a foreign country or going on a trip. He brings his servants in and he says, hey, I'm going to divide my estate among you to take care of it while I'm gone. And to, to each one of them, he gives according to their ability. He recognizes one of them's more gifted and, and more experienced than another. So he trusts him with a little more. So he gives to him five talents and it represents a portion of his estate. So he gives him five talents and to another two and to another one. And then he says to him, uh, he goes and he comes back and he gives an account. And the first one says, you gave me five and I made five more. And the second one says, you gave me two and I made two more. And he says, well done, you good and faithful servant. And then the third, you remember I talked about the fact he said, I, I, man, I was afraid. I didn't want to take any risk. I was afraid that if I invest that, I would lose the one that he gave me. So he dug a hole and he buried the one. And when he came back, he gave him what he gave to him. I mean, he didn't steal it. He gave him exactly what he gave back. 
And at least, you know, it doesn't sound like anything bad or wrong they would do, but some of the most harsh words you find in the entire New Testament are spoken against that man. When Jesus said, this is what the, 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 the owner of the property said, you wicked, lazy slave. And this is what he said, I knew you. Because I knew you, I was afraid. You know what that tells me? He didn't know him. Because if he didn't know him, he wouldn't be afraid. If he did know him, he wouldn't be afraid to invest that because he would have recognized he gave me one because he, he thinks I can do something with that. He has trusted me with that. And even if he would have failed, if he would have made a, a, a faithful effort at it, I, I, I think that, that the, the, the outcome would have been different. And I think that ultimately what God is calling us to is a relationship with him that enables us from that relationship to manage the resources that he gives us so that we would invest in the things that bring him pleasure, not just ourselves. Paul puts it this way in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He kind of talks about the things that are seen and the things that are unseen and investing in the things that are unseen. He says the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen, those are eternal things. And we're challenged here to invest in those things that are eternal. Well, then he offers the final parallel. In the final parallel, he says, okay, here's, here's another truth for you. you. You have got to focus on the things that God focuses on. You've got to value the things that God values. But then you also need to serve God first. He says, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate one, love the other. He'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. Now, I will have to tell you this, um, and it's just, it's just me, sorry, but there are certain verses of Scripture. When I see them, I'm reminded of stories. And I'm reminded of a story that was told. I, don't, I was told that it was Mark Twain, but a lot of stories have been attributed to Mark Twain that may or may not have been true about Mark Twain. So I don't know if it's a true story. It does kind of sound like him, but I did hear the story one time uh, about Mark Twain getting in an argument with a Mormon gentleman, and they were arguing over polygamy. And the Mormon was saying polygamy is okay, it's right, it's good, it's ordained by God. And the, the argument got a little heated and finally to the point that the Mormon said to Mark Twain, can you give me one verse of scripture that says polygamy is wrong? And Mark Twain said, I sure can. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. <laughs> I, I know the guys enjoy that a little bit more than the women, but that's, of course, not what Jesus meant in the text before us. But what he is talking about is familiar. But this is a powerful verse. But why is it powerful? I, I want you to look at the verse again because you're familiar with it. No one can serve two masters. Either you hate one, love the other, be devoted to one, despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. Why is that powerful? It's not powerful because there's a suggestion. He's not making any suggestion here. He's not suggesting we do this. He's not even commanding we do this. You know what, you know what makes this powerful? He is speaking of an impossibility. What Jesus says in the text is, you can't do it. 
You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't. You got to pick. You're going to do one or you're going to do the other, but you're not going to do both. You can't do that. You serve God, you've got to make a decision. And you know what's incredible to me is that you, you, you would think that you and I would get that, but I'm amazed at how many times in our life we think we can straddle the fence. How many times you and I think that in many areas of our life, there may be a sin in your life that God has put his finger on and said, you know, you know that's wrong. You know my word speaks against that. You know you're not supposed to do that. And you keep doing it anyway. You have no intention of quitting. You have no intention of stopping. You just continue to live in that sin. And yet you keep coming to church. You keep praying. You keep worshiping. And you act like everything's fine between you and God. And in fact, you think everything's good. Me and God are fine. Now, I know this over here is not supposed to be there, but me and God are okay. And you know what God's saying? No, we're not okay. You can't serve God in sin at the same time. You can't do it. Now, he's not saying that we live a perfect life and we've got to be perfect. Certainly, we sin and we repent. We turn from that to God and we, get God, we, we ask God to give us the strength to overcome it. But we cannot willfully defy the word of God and walk with God at the same time. And yet, I don't know how many times we try to do that. And how many times we justify our sin? Well, under these circumstances, it's okay to do that. And God says, no, it's not. You can't. What I want you to understand is you can't. You have been given resources. You have been given ability, and you cannot serve God and man. You can't serve the, the heaven and earth at the same time. You can't serve God and sin. It's amazing to me how many ways we flesh this out. I often see people, and, and we'll even see churches make provision for it. That's what really boggles my mind. We'll have a person that says, you know what, God says something's wrong, and we say, well, maybe not under these circumstances. And and give you an example, a lot of people embrace a homosexual lifestyle, which the Bible says is wrong. And you can find a church that says it's okay. You can actually find a church that says, you know what, it's fine to do that, even though God says wrong. But you know what he says in the text? No, you can't. Sorry. Now, I'm not just picking on homosexual people. Let me pick on heterosexual people. It's not just about that bend. If you're heterosexual and involved sexually with a person you're not married to, you know what the Bible says? That's wrong. You can't do that. God says sex is to be confined to marriage. And yet many times, you know what I see? We continue to live in, in sexual promiscuity and come to church on Sunday as if God's fine with it. I can do whatever I want to do, and God's going to be, I'm okay with God. God love God. And, God, and you know what he says? You can't do it. You can't straddle the fence. you got to choose. You can't go in that direction. You can't continue to live together in, in, in that and not fix that and, and think that everything's okay. And it's amazing to me. And I think because we do it in so many areas of our life when it comes to the stewardship of the resources God has for us, we fail to recognize that Jesus said you can't serve two masters. 
And you know what's amazing to me about this particular passage of Scripture, this text, kind of puts it in perspective for us, I think. Because I think all of us understand this one. I have had many, many, many opportunities to stand and sit with people who are near death, hold the hands of hundreds of people who have stepped off into eternity. And never do I ever hear any of them say, I wish I would have spent more time at work. I wish I would have worked harder to put money in the bank. I wish I would have built a bigger house. I wish I would have bought that car that I always wanted and never got. I wish I would have done. No, when we come to the end of our life, we begin to recognize the things that matter. And what God calls us to in the text before us is to be an individual that invests in things that matter, value what he values, focus on what he focuses on, serve him first. Reminiscent of the time when Joshua finally stood before the nation of Israel because they tried to do the same thing that we do with our sin. They tried to serve God and they said they can serve God and serve all the idols <laughs> that they picked up from the nations that they lived among. And, and, and Joshua finally come to them and he says, guys, today you got to choose. You got to choose. Choose this day who you're going to serve. Choose this day who you're going to serve. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I don't care what you do. I don't care which direction you do. As for me and my house, we're going to serve God. But you're going to have to choose today. And I think what God is calling us to is to make a choice. Are we going to value the things that he values? Are we going to focus on the things he focuses on? Are we going to serve him first? Because only then will we begin to move toward security in our life. So where do you place your value? Is your highest value on something that's temporary? Really? It's okay to enjoy the temporary, but don't invest there. Put your investment in things that matter. Where's your focus? Is it on yourself? Or are you able to see beyond yourself? To recognize the needs of others and the opportunity that God has given us to make a difference in their lives. And are we willing to say today, we will serve him first and nobody else? That's what God's called us to. And that, my friend, will put us down the path towards security. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the message you've given us today, the opportunity to respond to its truth. Oh, my goodness. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you put your finger on those areas in our life where we have compromised, where, where we think we can let this stay here and still have everything okay with you. Show us, God, what that is so that we can confess that to you and call it sin and ask you to forgive us, cleanse us, forgive us, restore us. God, we want to value the things that you value. We want to put our focus where you focus. We want to serve you first, your kingdom, so that we can live in the power of the resurrection in our daily life. For those that may be present that have never made a decision to receive you as Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would recognize their need for you, turn from sin to receive you as Savior and Lord as you speak. Speak in these moments, Holy Spirit, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.